Last Lord's Day evening, we taught in our current series of messages the scriptural command to pray for one another. While we looked at a number of passages, one of the main biblical texts we focused upon was James chapter 5. Turn there with me. James chapter 5. If you remember, as you're turning to James 5, we briefly went through this passage, ever so briefly, particularly the command James gives regarding our need to pray for one another, especially when it comes to praying for those who have sinned in some way, a sin which has affected them either physically or spiritually or even possibly in both ways. If we go back to James 5, there is a second one another that is, lifted, that is listed there, and we would do well to pick up that one another, and that is confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins to one another. Listen to James 5.13 and following. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. What I want to do tonight is tackle both of these one another's bearing one another's burdens, which will be a little later for us in Galatians 6, and this particular passage. We'll spend less time on this one than we do Galatians 6 because Galatians 6 will require uh, a good bit of unpacking. Here in James 5, we talked about it last time, so we don't have to talk a lot about it tonight, but James 5 is talking mainly, as we have read, about prayer, but tucked in the middle of this passage, of course, is that phrase at the end of verse 15, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven, therefore confess your sins to one another. So I want to talk a little bit about that tonight, that particular one another, confess your sins to one another here in James 5. And on your outline, you have listed as one of the subpoints: confession of sin is linked to accountability. Confession of sins is linked to accountability. What I mean by accountability is the accountability of the local church, the accountability of ourselves to the one who needs our help. The accountability is the local church comes together and we attempt to minister to those in our midst. And that is what's going on here in James 5. For instance, verse 13, is any among you, speaking of course, of the context of a local church, a local body of believers. Are you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them, that is the elders, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You remember that I said this could have a context of someone who is literally sick. He's, he's physically hurting in some way. Some commentators see this not as a, a literal sickness, but they see it more as a spiritual sickness. Now, there's something weighing this person down. He has a, a burden. And the elders of the church, emblematic of the church coming alongside this person in the form of their leaders, praying over him, anointing him with oil, either, either yes, physical oil, uh, used in that sense as that which God might use uh, in a, 
in a metaphorical way so that the person would be raised up, or you're taking this oil, and oil might be emblematic of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and you are using, as it were, the Holy Spirit's power to see God through the elders raise this person up spiritually from their spiritual sickness. Either way it goes, the idea here is accountability. We're together. We're a church. We're a body. And we come alongside someone. If they're suffering, we come alongside them to pray. If they're cheerful, we come alongside to sing praises. If they're sick, we come alongside them through the ministry of the leadership of the church, and we pray over him. The idea is nobody's alone, everybody's together, and we do our ministry together as one. Confession of sins is linked to accountability. Now, I use that phrase in each of these subpoints, the confession of sins, because at the latter part of this uh, verse 15, as I said, it clearly says that if someone, whoever this brother, whoever this sister might be, if someone has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is, this is what we do in the body of Christ. We, when we come to Christ, we don't stop sinning. We still have the idea of remaining sin in our hearts. And because of that, we have sin to deal with. We're on the road of sanctification. We're pursuing holiness. And sometimes in that pursuit of holiness, we have sins that become quite evident to us. They weigh us down. They burden us. And we need help in the accountability of the body of Christ to not only sense the forgiveness of God, to know that forgiveness, but we need others to come alongside us. This passage in verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another, would make no sense at all if you were all alone, if you were doing your own thing, if you were living a self-styled Christianity, there would be no one to confess your sins to. This passage would make no sense. And because we are a body, and because we are accountable to one another, the very easy command to think through here is that if you are suffering, if you are sick, if you are burdened, and if you have particularly committed certain kinds of sins, we might say, you need others to come alongside you to help you and to pray for you. That's why I think these two one another's are linked so closely together. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Healed physically, healed spiritually, or both. And then he gives an example of a righteous man who was sinful like us, he had a nature like ours, Elijah. And uh, when he says he has a nature like ours, I'm assuming that built up in that illustration is something like this, Elijah is a sinner like we are. And because he's a sinner like we are, and even though he's pursuing holiness, and because he was a man of prayer, he's a good example for us. And so what do we do? We're in the church and we are struggling. We've committed some sins. We need brothers and sisters to come alongside us. And so we need Elijah-like persons to come alongside us. Righteous people who are prayer warriors. And that's why letter B here says, confession of sin is linked to forgiveness. We need at times not only the forgiveness of God, but it could be that this particular set of sins, whatever they may be, that James is referring to here, maybe it's also a group of sins or multiple sins of one kind or another in someone's life that affects the body, that affects those in the body. One person's sin spills over, as it were, onto others, and it affects their lives too. And so we need each other, and we need the forgiveness of one another. That's what I think may be at the very heart of this, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. By the Lord, yes. By others, very potentially so. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. It's linked to forgiveness. I've been in situations as a pastor where someone has come. Their sins may have affected them initially. Their sins may have affected them at the start, but have repercussions for others in the body. 
Maybe they've sinned against others in the body, or maybe their sins have affected other members of the body, and they come and they ask for, in their repentance, forgiveness. Sometimes it's public. Sometimes the sins that we're talking about have public consequences. That's generally true of leaders, because leaders don't commit private sins. When a leader sins, he's of such a nature as one who stands, especially in the pulpit, who, who never really sins private sins, because ultimately, if he sins the kinds of sins that have repercussions for the whole body, then it's a public sin, because he's a public figure. It only takes one pin to burst a balloon. And sometimes it only takes one sin, even if he assumes that leader, that that sin is being done in private, but it often has the kind of uh, implications for the whole body in public. That's why there are so many passages that speak about the responsibility of a leader. And in 1 Timothy 5, it talks about a leader who has sinned in such an unrepentant way that he needs to be rebuked in the presence of all so that all may fear sinning. All, I suspect, are not only the other leaders but the entire congregation because the leader has to confess his sins to all. That's why the idea of a pastor committing immorality is so devastating for a flock because his sin is never private. The sin of sexual immorality, to use but one example, is the kind of sin, especially for a leader, for an elder, is the kind of uh, implicative sin that brings such a wide reproach. Now, if you back it down from a leader's sin and you just say, we're simply talking about the body, we're simply talking about uh, the, the general mix of believer on believer in their lives, here's the idea. The confession of our sin, it requires the accountability of all and it requires the forgiveness of all. Now, all may be some in the sense that a that a small Bible study group or a, a, a small group ministry uh, where they are holding one another accountable and that forgiveness can be sought and granted in that small group. It's not something that has to be uh, paraded out in front of the congregation as a whole. But the bottom line is this. When someone sins the kinds of sins for which they need to be confessed in the presence of all, and there are guidelines there. I wish we had time to talk through all the implications of that. But if that's the case, this command is applicable. Confess your sins to one another for the sake of being forgiven. And then let her see there, confessions of sin is of course linked to prayer. Pray for one another, verse 16 says, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person like Elijah has great power as it is working. Fervent prayer, effectual prayer, righteous praying that accomplishes much. And then he gives the example of Elijah who prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years and it didn't. Then he prayed again and it did. You say, well, that's the kind of praying uh, that I know very little about. Well, it might be seen by some as a grandiose illustration, but the heart of the message behind the prayer isn't. And that is, be a righteous person and pray for one another in such a way that your prayers are effective on their behalf. That's it. That's all. Confess your sins to one another. Now, practically speaking, how do you do that? If you're unsure about what you should do, if you believe your sin affects other people, especially those in the body, then go to a leader. Talk to someone. I need help. I need you to come alongside me. I need prayer. I think I've really messed up. I think I've, I've really done a disservice to the body. I'm not sure. It may be that I have to go to some others in the body and I have to confess to them. By the way, the word confession, homologeo, is, is the word that says to say the same thing as. So what you do is you agree with God that that sin is a sin. You're, you're confessing that this particular sin that I've committed is sin. It is grievous to the Lord. It is dishonoring to Him. And so, if you believe that you've sinned a kind of sin that has implications for others in the body, and maybe just a few, then you go and you seek their forgiveness and you, 
you bask in the forgiveness that they grant to you, if there are wider implications of that, then they may have to be dealt with in the leadership of the church. You say, well, I don't know. What would be some examples? Well, we don't have enough time to, to give all the examples, but this might help. I think that there are three categories of sin. I alluded to them when I talked about a leader sin, and here they are. There are things that you and I commit as sins that we might call secret sins. Secret sins. What are secret sins? Well, they might be sins of the thought life of a person. You are thinking something, and it is a sinful thought, it's a sinful desire, you know it's wrong, you know it's a violation of God's Word, you know it's dishonoring to Christ if you think such a thing. That's an example I'm giving you of a secret sin. Well, I'm not telling you, and no one else is, and the Word of God isn't right here in James 5, telling you that every time you have a secret sin of your heart, you have to go confess it to a small group, or you have to confess it uh, to others in a larger setting. Secret sins are, generally speaking, dealt with in a secret way between you and your God, between you and your Lord. There's another kind of sin or category of sin, and that's, of course, what we might call private sin. So there are secret sins, and then there are private sins. Private sins are, in fact, those sins that sort of move their way outside of the context of your own thought life or, or, or your own personal relationship with God, and they move into the area of sins that occur either in front of or toward someone else. And if that's the case, then by all means, those private sins need to be confessed to those brothers and sisters to whom either you've sinned against or you have sinned in front of, let's say. Those are private sins. And those might be of the category that James, James speaks of here. Private sins. And these private sins could happen, for instance, in a small group. They could happen maybe in a Christian household. They could happen in the context of a local church. And they may even happen in the context of these private sins, which have uh, become a little bit more than just two or three people. But again, in the, appropriate, the appropriateness of the setting, as guided by the leadership of the church, these are the kinds of sins that ought to be confessed to one another. They ought to be forsaken, and therefore, if they are repented of and forsaken, they ought to, by all means, be forgiven, right? And then, of course, there's that third category, and I alluded to it, alluded to it regarding uh, the leaders of a church. First Timothy 5 would be a good passage uh, to go to in this regard, and those would be what we call public sins public sins. Secret sins, private sins, and public sins. And as I told you, there is often not a leader, at least in terms of, again, the implications of his sins, that he does not actually sin private sins so much because he's a public person. Now, that doesn't mean a man is perfect, but it does mean that he remains above reproach if he keeps those sins in check. But if those sins are not kept in check, and that very public person sins the kinds of sins that have a reproach brought on him for his actions, then he can never confess not just secret sins and not just private sins because those sins for him are public, and so he must confess public sins. That's why there is a difference between leaders and those within a congregation who are following such leaders. That's why he must remain above reproach. And if he doesn't, he has to confess. And sometimes, and in some contexts, the kinds of sins that he does commit bring such a reproach that that person is forever barred for ministry, or at least until that sin can be so completely done away with. You say, well, what would examples like that consist of? Well, again, we don't have time to talk about all of those, but for instance, if there was a man who had committed some kind of sexual sin, and he's a, a leader, he's an elder, he's a, he's a pastor, he's a shepherd, and he commits such a sin to bring reproach upon his people, to sin against the one he has sinned with, uh, to sin against maybe a spouse, or the person he sinned with, uh, and their spouse has been sinned against, uh, whatever the case may be, uh, that person may be in the church, that person may be outside the church, but he's made such a mess of his life because he has sinned and he's supposed to be a public leader. Uh, that's no secret sin. It's transcended that. It's no private sin. 
sin. It's transcended that. It's a public sin for which he must actually confess publicly. In fact, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I'll show you this very thing. 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is why these things are so serious. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer, the laborer deserves his wages. That means he's to be compensated for his work. And then let's say someone brings a charge against an elder, some reproachable act. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Has to be confirmed, has to be validated, has to be investigated. As for those who persist in sin, in other words, he, do, he does not only not confess the sins, but he continues in the sins. He doesn't repent from those sins. Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Not only the rest of the elders, of course, but the rest of the congregation because it is a public rebuke. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, here's the audience for such an issue. I charge you to keep these rules without, preju without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. The idea there is don't treat this man different than anybody else. In fact, treat him only differently in the sense that if he's, that if he's a public figure, he needs to be rebuked pub publicly if he persists in sin. It's a high standard, isn't it? It's a very, very high standard. And it's passages like this that cause a person like me and anybody else who's thinking through these things to think long and hard before getting involved in some kind of sinful activity for which ultimately there is great reproach. You say, a scare tactic? Not necessarily, but if it works, then, then be afraid. Be very afraid. Go through the checklist of your life. What would my God think about this? What would my Savior think about this? What would the Holy Spirit think about what I'm doing now, what I'm saying now, what I'm involved with in the activity of my life? Would I be grieving my wife with these actions? Would I be grieving my children? One of the things that is an inbuilt accountability on my life are my own family members. I don't ever, ever want my wife to look at me in the eye and say these words, how could you? How could you? How, how could you do this to the church? How could you do this to your Lord? How, how could you do this to your family? How could you do this to me? Keep those, keep those words ringing in your mind so that you're rehearsing day after day. I can't do that. I can't even get within a mile of such a thing. I can't be involved in such sin. I can't trash my life for some momentary pleasure. I can't be involved in things like that. I'm going to bring reproach on Christ. I'm going to bring, bring, bring reproach on the church. I'm going to bring reproach on my family. What would my children think of me? What would they believe in my role as a pastor, a shepherd, a leader, a Bible teacher, a preacher of the gospel? What would they think about the credibility of, of what I do when I stand up here and I, and I teach the Word of God? They would say, I don't know if I can believe what he says. I don't know if, he, if he's reliable. I don't know if he's believable. I don't know if his reputation is matched. You say, well, is it always and forever going to be like that for someone who has a publicly reproached position? It could. It could. I remember... Charles Spurgeon, in his book, Lectures to My Students, who quotes John Angel James, who was asked the question, can a man who sins in that way ever be restored to a public ministry, a pulpit, a preacher? John Angel James says, only if at such a time his, re his repentance is as notorious as his sin. Good thought. Only if the man's repentance, his brokenness, 
his, his showing the world how much this reproach has meant to him and how repentant he is and how broken he is. And I would assume decades upon decades of a person who would live in the mastery of his life so that something like that would never befall him again. Maybe, only, possibly, potentially, could he ever return to the pulpit. And probably not. That's why in Proverbs chapter 6, when it says, if a man commits adultery with a woman, he is lacking sense. He's out of his mind. He who would do this destroys himself. And his reproach will not be blotted out. It's a high standard. Aren't you glad you're not standing up here? But you know, the riches and the rewards of such a standard keeps you clean, healthy, encouraged. Not sinless, but above reproach in the sense there's not something blamable about a man's life and he can be a member of the congregation worshiping and serving and leading in such a way that God's ideal is kept in focus. So that may give you at least a little help from this side of the pulpit, from your side of the congregational view of such a pulpit. It ought to be a challenge for all of us to say, when I know I have committed secret sins, confess them as soon as you can. Get rid of those as soon as you can. As soon as that thought comes in, say to yourself, how can I do such a thing? How could I think such a thing? What would people think if they were inside my brain right now? Or if you commit some level of private sin, again, seek to do what's right. Seek to go through the paces. Seek, seek to confess. Seek to grab others around you to hold you accountable. That's letter A, the accountability of the local church. Letter B, to seek forgiveness from them so that you might be restored relationally to them or others, especially if you sinned against them. And to be so very prayerful with one another that the fervent prayer of righteous people are coming alongside you so that you can be, as it were, protected spiritually with a force field of good and righteousness to which you would also long to be when one of these other brothers or sister, sisters fall into sin and you can help them. Now I want to be real practical. So I'll go to Roman numeral number two, Roman numeral number two, and we'll talk a little bit about Galatians chapter six and the bearing of the burdens of others. Look at Galatians chapter six. We'll try to go through this as fast as we possibly can. And I think this is a passage that should be at the top of our list in our relationships with one another, especially as it relates to the burden of our sins, the burdens that we bear as related to our sins. Listen to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted." Bear one another's burdens, and so thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But lest each one test his own work, but, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And maybe about... 25 minutes or so. Let's unpack this, all right? Because this is a very, very important passage. And two major remarks I want to make about it. The first one is this. The spirit controlled must gently and humbly restore fallen fellow believers. The spirit controlled must gently and humbly restore fallen fellow believers. Look at verse 1. Brothers, that means, of course, brothers and sisters. It's not exclusive to, to males. It's, it's brothers, that is, brothers and sisters. 
if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Alongside each of these commands is a warning, which we'll get to. But in verse 1, I want you to see that there are basically two participants or two sides to this scenario here of relationships. You have the brothers, according to verse 1, who are, by the way, further defined in the verse as you who are spiritual, which we'll talk about because it seems confusing to some because the word or phrase you who are spiritual almost has the connotation somebody who's in like a a super enlightened sense of spirituality, the, the spiritual. Brothers and then the spiritual. And the answer to that is not so. Brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ are the spiritual. The spiritual is just a way of describing Christians because they are spirit-controlled. They're in the realm of the spirit. They're not unbelievers. They're not a part of the flesh. Galatians 5 says that there are, there are attributes, there are things that make up someone who is enveloped in the flesh. And you see a list there in Galatians 5, divisions and factions, and it gives a very hideous list of all of those who are basically bound to the flesh. They live in the flesh. Their world is the flesh. They're worldly. They're fleshly. They're carnal. They're non-Christians. And then you have those who are a part of the Spirit. They are in the realm of the Spirit. Therefore, they are spiritual people. They're Spirit-controlled. They're filled by the Holy Spirit. And they have, therefore, in their lives, reflecting the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They are ones who are marked by the control of the Holy Spirit. So you have the fleshy people and you have the spiritual people. And yes, it's true that fleshly people can sometimes look as though they're doing what appear to be spiritual things. And yes, it's also true that there are the spiritual people who can do sometimes some very fleshly things. But these are two different categories. And when Paul talks in Galatians 5 about those who are manifesting the fleshly world and those who are manifesting the spiritual world, when he comes to chapter 6, verse 1, you who are spiritual is just a matter of saying those of you who are Christians. You're in these Galatian churches. There was not one Galatian church. There were a group of churches, probably house churches. And... uh, Paul was writing this letter to the Galatians because these churches needed this circular letter and he's saying those of you who are Christians, those of you who are spiritual, you need to come alongside others. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. And then you have on the other side of the scenario, according to verse 1, somebody who's caught. Somebody who's caught. What does that mean? You're really talking about someone who is caught unawares, we might say. Someone who has fallen into sin. It's, it's a kind of word, by the way. The word caught, the Greek term comes from uh, prolambano. It means to, to overtake or to surprise. It's like a surprise attack. It, it, it doesn't mean that the person isn't responsible for their sin. They are responsible, but it, it gives the connotation uh, that they were deceived. Uh, Satan, his, his demon world, uh, the, the, uh, the world itself was, was cunning and, and, it, and he was deceived. He was, he was caught somewhat unawares and he, and he, and he fell uh, into uh, this particular sinful activity. Now it is called a trespass, for optima, it means a misdeed or, or a sin. It's a synonym for that general Greek word, word uh, hamartia, uh, that's the word for sin. It, it is a sin, we're, we're not trying to uh, minimize it, but, but he was caught in sin. Someone's come in by stealth, or there was a temptation, and they needed the help of others to become extricated from the consequences of this sin. And, and who best to do that but those who are controlled by the Spirit? Fellow members of the body, fellow 
spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. He's, he's been trapped. She's, she's fallen into sin's enticement. And it's not like this fellow or this woman doesn't have any of the Holy Spirit in themselves. Yes, they do, but they've been trapped. They've been duped by the evil one. They've allowed themselves to be falling under the sway and the cunning of some tempters. They need, and they need help. They need fellow believers. They need the spiritual ones, those who are walking in and with and by the Spirit to come alongside them and to do something for them that they can't do presently for themselves at that moment. And what does Paul say for them to do? What's the command there? Restore. Restore them. Katartidzete means restore or return or repair someone to their former good condition. I like that. You know, in Matthew 4.21, it talks about James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee, and they were working in chapter 4, verse 21 of Matthew, with their father, Father Zebedee, and it says they were mending their nets. That word mending is the same word here for restore. Mending someone, repairing them, helping them. To, to mend what is, what is broken, what is amiss, what is not right. You know, I quoted this morning from 1 Peter 5.10, the word restore, same word. Restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. And notice what, what Paul says is the attitude of these spiritual people. In a spirit of gentleness or a gentle spirit. There's no reason for piling on. They've sinned. It's, it's apparent. Uh, maybe they've come to you or, or you've gone to him and, and he's caught. He's caught in this trespass. And what we need to do now in a spirit of gentleness, gentle spirit, is to restore, to, to mend the nets, to, to, to bind up the wound, to fix the broken. And by the way, given what Paul's already said here in Galatians chapter 5 about the fruit of the Spirit and the control of the Spirit, this would make so much sense, wouldn't it? A gentle spirit. You know, we're not haughty about this. We're not high and mighty. We're not saying, wow, you've certainly got yourself into a big mess. I'm glad I'm above this situation. No, not at all. Why? Because at some point you may need the very same thing from them. When you come into the body of Christ, it's no longer every man for himself. It's one for all. All for one. And one of the chief reasons why we should treat these sinners gently is because at some point we're going to need that restorative help ourselves. We're going to become ensnared in a trespass. And I think that's why he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There's always that qualifier. There's always that sense of beware. That's why 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, lest anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's, that's true of all of us. Because we're all so prone, even as spiritual people, to veer, to get off course. So, what's the practicality of burden bearing? If anyone is caught in any transgression, you, the, the spiritual people, the people in the body of Christ, restore, repair, mend someone with a gentle spirit, even at the same time continuing to keep watch on yourself, lest at some point that cunning temptation, that tempter, the devil himself, the world, whatever it may be, or even just yourself and your remaining sin, so that you will be careful not to assume the high and mighty position, because at some point you may very well be tempted, you may be very well be caught, and you might fall into a trespass like they once did, and you will need to call upon them as they once called upon you. Gently restore. And then secondly, the Spirit-controlled 
must bear one another's burdens so as to fulfill the law of Christ. This will fill out the rest of our passage, verses 2 through 5. So the first verb in verse 1 is restore him. Restore him. The warning, you better keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Here's the second command, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I think these particular verses in proximity to the very proximity of verse 1 links the restoring of someone who's been caught in a trespass to also working diligently to bear the burden, and I assume it means bear the burden of someone's sins. Not just a generic burden, but very potentially the burden of someone's sins, the burdens that he or she has been carrying. To bear someone's burden, I think in this context, means to lighten the load of someone, to help them carry the weight of their sin difficulty. Maybe we're talking about helping others even with the consequences of what sin has done in their life. You want to come alongside them. Sin has, has ravaged them, ravaged their family. And you want to gently come alongside them. And you want to have the, the Spirit of Christ. You say, well, what's the Spirit of Christ? Well, the Spirit of Christ according to Romans 15, 1, is we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please our neighbor for his good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Christ is our example. And by the way, speaking of Christ as our example... Paul goes on here in Galatians 6.2 to say that when you come alongside your, your fallen fellow believers and you bear their burden, you're fulfilling what is said here to be the law of Christ. The law of Christ. That's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? But what does it mean, the law of Christ? Well, it's used, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 9.21, this phrase, the law of Christ. But what does it mean exactly? Well, I think it probably means something like this. Look back at chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In this context, in the book of Galatians, maybe the yoke of slavery is don't go back to the Judaizers. Don't go back to those who tell you you've got to have Christ plus circumcision. No, Throw off the yoke of circumcision or any other thing that you think you must do in order to receive Christ, in order to be accepted by Christ, to be justified by Christ. Throw off that because Christ has set us free. If he's died for us, then we're free from having to self-save. We can't self-save anyway, and so you've got to be free. And then he talks about the implications of what that means for the believer who is free, and that's why verse 13 of Galatians 5 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. See, you've been delivered from your fleshly life. So what do I do? How do I pursue my holiness as a freed person in Christ? Through love, serve one another. For the whole law maybe even implied here, the law of Christ is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's getting at the heart of what the law of Christ is. You know, it talks in James. Look back over at James chapter 1, and maybe this is getting very, very close to a specific definition of what the law of Christ means. In James chapter 1, for instance, look at verse 25. James 1, 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, 
but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So whatever this law of liberty that he refers to here, whatever it is, it's, it's being obedient to the Word of God, to the principles of the Word of God, the dictates of the Word of God. And look at chapter 2, verse 8. He says, in another kind of law, if you really fulfill the royal law, not just the law of liberty, not just the law of Christ, the royal law, According to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Don't show partiality. So you have the law of liberty, being a word doer. You have the law of royal obedience, loving your neighbor as yourself. Maybe that's also getting us fairly close to what it means, the law of Christ. And then look at verse 11. For he who said, James chapter 2, verse 11, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And there he is again saying the law of liberty. So what's that? Well, I believe the law of liberty, the royal law, the law of Christ is something like this. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I, Jesus, loved you, that you also love one another. What's the law of Christ? That you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. Transcending even the Old Testament law, even the Mosaic law, transcending it in the sense that its fulfillment finds itself in two great commandments, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And upon those two commandments, everything hinges. Everything hinges, including the law of liberty, including the royal law, including the law of Christ. So what do you do when you fulfill the law of Christ? You're actually bearing the burdens of one another and thus fulfilling that law, the law of love. Just as Christ loved his disciples, so you and I ought to love one another. That's the law of Christ. That's the law of liberty. That's the royal law. To being able to love others in a spirit-engendered obedience, which Jesus Christ commands us to do because he's shown us in himself and his actions when he loved his own disciples. That's the law of Christ. And then he says something interesting, does Paul here in Galatians 6, 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. <laughs> what does that mean? If, if there's a person who thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You know, if you sort of take that out of the context of this passage you might try to define it as any number of things. But in this context, in the context of this passage, I take it to mean someone who assumes he's above bearing one another's burdens. He's above it. He doesn't have to do it. He doesn't have to fulfill the royal law, the law of love. He doesn't have to fulfill the law of Christ. Why? Because he thinks he's something. He doesn't think he has to fulfill that. And so Paul says, for somebody who's proud or arrogant, if you don't think you have a responsibility in the body of Christ to bear one another's burdens because you think you're something, let me tell you, you're nothing. You're nothing. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And I suspect... Because he is deceiving himself, he will be deceived at some point. He will be caught in his own trespass, and his pride and arrogance will undo him, and then he will be clamoring for others to come alongside and help him. Right? And isn't that what happens? I mean, he thinks he's something. And then he realizes he's nothing. And then he realizes, I should have worked to replace my pride with humility, and I should have been all about doing what I could to bear one another's burdens because I want to fulfill the law of Christ. Christ loved his own. He loved them to the end. He loved them with a kind of 
perfect and mature love, and I strive for that so I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about others, and I want to bear their burdens. I don't want to think of myself as something when I'm nothing. It's the person who didn't heed 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He thought he was something when he was nothing, and he fell to the temptation. That's what it means to bear one another's burdens. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, So neither he who plants, he or Apollos, nor he who waters is anything. We're nothing. Only God who gives the growth. Well, that's just the... That's the maintaining of the attitude that we're nothing special. Which means that we're humble enough to receive the help when we desperately need it and we're ready and willing and able and desirous of reaching out to others when they need our help. But wait a minute. How does all this burden bearing of another brother or sister have to do with verses 4 and 5? Because as soon as he says, you think you're something when you're nothing, you deceive yourself, bear one another's burdens, fulfill the law of Christ, he gives a but here in verse 4. But let each one test his own work and then let him have reason to boast and that boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each one will have to bear his own load. What is he talking about? I mean, he's just said, don't deceive yourself. Bear one another's burdens. Fulfill the law of Christ. And now he's saying something about boasting in yourself alone and not boasting in your neighbor and everybody's going to have to bear his own load. I mean, sometimes these passages are a little difficult, right? I mean, what's the command here? What's my duty? What's my responsibility? Am I to bear my own load? Yes. Am I to... Test my own work? Yes. Am I supposed to not be arrogant and, and not sort of uh, ignore those who need to have their burdens bore? Yes. Well, how do I do all that? And how do I do all of that well? What's he, what's he talking about here in verses 4 and 5? Well, I think Paul possibly has in mind here some kind of counterbalance to someone who's been caught in a trespass. And he's been helped. He's come out of it. He's been forgiven. And now he, he sort of moves up the spiritual ladder uh, to a level of maturity. He's growing. He's thanked those for helping him before, uh, but now he's ascended uh, to more spiritual maturity. And, and the more he grows spiritually, the more he assumes that, that when someone else is, is inclined to be helped, he's saying, brother, you've got you to bury your own load. You've you got to test your own work. You've got you to be restored by working hard. And someone would say, yes, I, I agree with that. I need to do that. But maybe he's out of balance. And maybe he's working on himself. He's testing his own work. He's trying to, to boast in what is happening in his own life and his own spiritual development and not his neighbor. He's bearing his own load, and he gets so busy doing that that he doesn't have time to bear the burdens of others anymore. Maybe even totally forgetting the fact that someone helped him at one time with his burden bearing. You see, it's probably all a matter of the balance of our believing that we were once helped, so therefore we help. And if we help, we look for a time when we in the future will need to be further helped. So there's always that, that balance and, and counterbalance. I can't be so proud. I can't be so arrogant that I assume that I don't need the help of others. Lone Ranger Christian. 
I don't need anybody, and then I, then I fall into that trespass, I get caught, and then I need somebody, and I, and I yell help, and, and then I get helped, and then when I get helped, and I'm improving, and I'm growing, and I'm maturing, and then I get off to myself again, and someone comes along and says, I need your help, and I, and I turn a blind eye to that because I'm testing my own work, I'm, I'm bearing my own load, and, and I'm not helping those who are weak, and and so I've got to move over, and I've got to, in addition to testing my own load and, and bearing my own work, I, I, I have to help my brother and sister. That is a balance, to be sure. But maybe that's what he's driving toward here. Maybe the proper balance to living out your Christian life is, yes, you've got to test, you've got to examine your own life, your own work, but when you don't truly believe you can do it by yourself, you, you take up the help from others when you need it. And that's why you need to confess your sins to one another and, and where it's appropriate. And you receive such burden bearing by others. And you don't base, uh, boast in your own sanctification as though you've done it all by yourself. And, and you, you've had clearly the help from others. And you receive that help. And you acknowledge that. And you're, you're humble in that. And yes, it's true, it's one thing to work hard at helping others, and it's wonderful to be helped by others, but, but we are responsible to bear our own load, that's true, but we can't do it all alone, and we need others in the body of Christ, and so when they come alongside us, we receive such a help, especially if we've been caught in a trespass. You say, that sounds just downright confusing. Well, it could if my priorities are out of whack, and when I know I'm supposed to be reaching out because I am growing and my load is lighter at this point as I work on my own sanctification and I see a need out there, well, I ought to be willing to go and help meet that need. That's probably even going to help me bear my own load when I'm helping others. And when I need it, I sure hope that there are going to be people who reach out to me and who say, brother, let's come alongside you so that we can help bear your load with you. So that you're not so proud and arrogant that you think you can do all of your load all of the time in your own way without any help from anybody else. You know what I think is true about this passage? And it's sort of uh, interleaved and interworked through all of these verses, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and it's something like this. We need each other. We so need each other. We have blind spots. We have weaknesses. We have faults. We have failures. We're on this journey we call the Christian life, and we need help, and we need others, and they need us. They need us. That's why... You ought to be a committee of one at Bethany Church to personally invite every single person who's not here tonight to come on Sunday nights. That's why you ought to be a committee of one to reach out to brothers and sisters and say, we need to pray together. Will you pray with me? Come to Wednesday nights, 6.30 p.m., We'll pray together. Our church will only be as strong and vibrant and maturing and growing as these public meetings are having saints gather together with each other to pray. Is this the only place where they can pray? No, not at all. Small groups? Yes. Men's studies? Yes. Women's studies? Yes. Children's ministry? Yes. Youth? Yes. Young adults? Yes. All the above. But we need more. We need more. We need to press each other for the sake of, I want to pray for you. I want to pray with you. Let's pray together. If we've got some public meetings, let's gather together for prayer. There is something very special about praying together. Very special. There's something about individual relationships, accountability. There's something about the forgiveness sought and granted with just a few and sometimes with the whole. There's something about a church moving in a direction together, not with people just kind of doing their own thing, not just people who are taking what they want and, and giving sometimes very little. Well, I'll, I'll attend this Bible study because I really like that teacher, I really like that subject, but I, I'm not sure I want to come and pray with anybody else because it's, it's all about what I'm receiving. 
not necessarily what I'm giving. See, I'm making a case that if we were in the early church, if we were in the first century, I would suspect that just about everyone would be showing up to everything because they would know in a time of great persecution that they would need all of that and more, right? Well, these one another's. I mean, someone ought to do a series like this, cover every one another of the New Testament, and put it in a book for everybody, right? Maybe we should write that. Not, not me, you. Write it by your experience. Write it by your living it out. And then the reputation of this church would go far and wide. If you want to see the practices of the one another's of the New Testament, you ought to go there. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Let's do that. Let's live a kind of one anothering for which the world will take notice. Let's pray.